Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Today we continue and wrap up our refutation of Michael Brown's opening statement by addressing a whole smattering of texts, including Isaiah 9-6, John 20-28, 20, Colossians 2-9, 2 Peter 1-1, Romans 9-5, and 1 John 5-20. We explain and debunk Brown's unusual singular verb argument from 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Revelation 22, and we briefly touch upon Zechariah 14 and Matthew 28, 19, before handling Brown's case for the independent personality of God's Spirit. We look at the angel passage from Genesis 48 and the whole concept of seeing God in Old Testament times. In the end, we find that Brown's case is not only confusing and self-contradictory, but he also repeatedly presupposes the deity of Christ in exegesis. He cherry-picks texts without regard for their context, and he regularly disregards the Hebrew culture of key passages. In the end, we remain unconvinced by his case for the Trinity. Here now is episode 162, Refuting Michael Brown's Case for the Trinity, Part 4. Let's see what Brown says next. That's why Isaiah said in 9.6 that one of the Messiah's titles would be Mighty God, yet it's Yahweh in Isaiah 10.21 who's called Mighty God. That's why Thomas said to the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. The text is totally clear. And that's why Paul wrote in Colossians 2.9 that the whole fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Jesus. So let's tackle Isaiah 9.6 first. What do you think, Jerry? So Brown and his style it is, he just kind of is throwing out what I am going to deem proof texts here that he thinks are uh, case-closed evidence uh, for his position that Jesus must be God. And Isaiah 9-6, and this is another one where... If you look, the the Hebrew wording El Gibor here, you know, yeah, he ties it in here with Isaiah 10, 21, where yes, uh, God is is called El Gibor as well. But the word El Gibor even, that entry itself, look in in Brown Driver Biggs, uh, BDB, uh, the entry refers to a mighty hero. Uh, The idea being that the word El is used of kings, it's used in rulers, and and used of other... um, people in power, strong people, uh, human beings. Um, and so the idea that this must be a reference to uh, Yahweh, that um, applying uh, 9-6 as a messianic uh, title that he's going to be called Mighty God. Well, he, he's not called Mighty God. Uh, in the New Testament, of course, uh, Brown tries to bring up uh, John 20, 28 and Thomas's confession as, well, that's the messianic fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6. Where did he get that from? I have no idea because it doesn't sound anything like it. But I think he's just trying to connect together proof texts. That's the sense I get from what he's trying to do here. But back to Isaiah 9, 6, uh, I just... 
look at this and don't understand, he doesn't expound upon any considerations. Actually, even Tuggy pushed back on him and talking about the everlasting father of which Jesus is supposed to be called. But Tuggy's like, oh, no, he, he can't actually be the father as well, because that would be some sort of modalism that I don't I don't want to admit that I actually am modalistic in my view of God. Uh, it's, it's rather that translation is better translated, uh, the, the possessor of everlastingness. And so uh, Brown has this understanding of that phrase that would fit with his theology, but then he doesn't even touch the El Gabor phrase because he likes that one. Yeah, that was crazy. When I saw that, I was just like, you're going to take mighty God at face value because it fits your theology, and then you're going to retranslate eternal father to sort of smooth it out and take it as a metaphor rather than as literal, the eternal father. You're inconsistent in applying your method, even within the same verse taking one thing in one way and another thing in another way on the basis of your theology. The exegesis should drive your theology, not the other way around. Furthermore, Isaiah 9, 6, uh, as a messianic text, also had like an immediate fulfillment in the time of Isaiah, of which Isaiah, talking about this child that was to be born, uh, that he will be named Wonderful Counselor, uh, the Mighty One, the Everlasting Father, or the Father of Everlastingness, uh, if you want to take Brown's perspective on that one, the Prince of Peace. This is a, a way that Jesus Christ, as the Davidic King, the Son of David, that he was going to inherit this kingdom, and he was going to be a ruler. He was going to be a counselor. He was going to be mighty in his works, and his words, and in the way that he uh, represented the Almighty God himself and he was going to bring peace to the world and he was going to be the possessor of everlastingness or the father of everlastingness he that's why he's the firstborn out from among the dead and in hebrews 1 he's the firstborn in the world he's he's the first one born again of resurrection uh, having new life so brown doesn't do a very good job of trying to defend the claim in isaiah 9 6 that it must be jesus is god Another point just to bring in here uh, quickly, Jerry, is that this is a theophoric name. This is something that the Israelites commonly did. There are many others who bore names that included the word God, which in Hebrew is comes in as Elohim or El or Yah, a lot of times a shortened form of Yahweh. For example, Eliab means my God Father. Jehoram means Yahweh exalted. Ithiel means God with me. Isaiah means salvation of Yahweh. Having a name doesn't necessarily describe you. It describes God. And we don't have this in our culture, so this is one of these factors where we just need to have a little sensitivity to the Hebrew mindset versus the way we call our children today. Can you imagine someone today calling their kid God Father? That's the kid's name. One word, God Father. <laughs> we would think of the movie, of course, right? But this is what Eliab means. It means it literally means my godfather. That's what the kid's name was. My godfather, it's time for dinner. My godfather, stop harassing your brother. You know, that's what they called their kids. And it wasn't because they thought that kid was their God or that that kid was their father or was Yahweh. That kid's name says something about the God they worship. And, you know, again, this is, this is a cultural thing. We see it in Isaiah 7. We see it in Isaiah 8. We see it in Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 7, it's Emmanuel. That kid was an actual kid that lived and died in the days of Isaiah. And then in Isaiah 8, it's uh, Meher Shal Hashbaz, right? 
And that was a kid whose birth, it was a sign child whose birth signaled the end of oppression. And then now in Isaiah 9, it's a little too long to say out in Hebrew, but it's another one of these Hebrew name sentences that is distinctive to the earlier chapters of Isaiah in this, in this grouping of three that applies very probably to Hezekiah historically. And then only by extension to Jesus, ultimately, just like so many of these prophecies we see in the Old Testament. So moving on here to John 20, 28, with the famous declaration of Thomas, my Lord and my God, when he sees Jesus uh, and uh, believes in, in Jesus. This is definitely one of the places in the New Testament that's incontrovertible, that the Greek word theos is being applied to Jesus. The question is, in what way? Brown would have us think that, well, because theos is just being used of Jesus, then that must mean he's almighty God, the, the one who created the heavens and the earth, uh, the one who is God alone, who uh, has his throne in heaven and the earth is his footstool. Thomas's declaration here, my Lord and my God, as an exclamation of his submission in belief to Jesus as the Messiah, I don't think that this can be taken as a proof text uh, without any other considerations. The idea that he exclaims Jesus is his kurios and his theos, you can take it to be a hendiadus where Jesus is Thomas's godly Lord. Another way to look at it would be this is two epi- a double epithet where Jesus is called a kurios and a theos as honorific terms. Uh, not that he that Thomas is declaring him to be his Lord in a positional sense, and then he's God in, an, in some sort of an ontological existence. Uh, these two titles that Thomas uses seem to describe the way that Thomas understands Jesus to be functioning in his messianic capacity. And another possibility is that John, as a gospel, if you read it literarily, there, there was a lot of question at the Last Supper before Jesus died. And there was a lot of confusion. Where are you going? And, you know, Philip asked questions, show us the father. He's like, how can you ask that? So, and Thomas was there and Thomas was asking questions to it during that same meal that, you know, Jesus claim in the gospel of John, it's not that he is God in human form. No, it's that God has sent him, that he's God sent one and that God is at work within him. Just like it says in second Corinthians five nineteen that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So this is Jesus claim that the father, when you see him, you see the father, not because he is a father, but because the father is in him because God is at work in him. He is not making stuff up on his own. These are the father's words. These are the father's works. These are God's, he's doing God's will for Thomas. Finally, the lights go on and he recognizes it. He sees it. He believes it. My Lord and my God, not because Jesus is God, but because God is in Christ, and Thomas is now affirming that. So that's that's another possibility. Kermit Zarley has really developed that in his book, The Restitution of Jesus Christ, which you can get if you want to look into that deeper. I mean, there are, there are a number of different options here, but look, the simple fact of the matter is Jesus died. Thomas was sad. He heard reports that Jesus was alive again. Thomas didn't believe it, and then he saw Jesus— and he believed. Look, God can't die. Even in the debate, Brown admitted this. 
that God cannot die. And we see this very clearly in Scripture, 1 Timothy 1.17, 1 Timothy 6.16, that God is immortal. He cannot die. And so the very fact of the resurrection proves that Jesus is not God. And I know that it's very typical for people in the apologetics circles to say, oh, the resurrection proves Jesus claims to be God. Well, first of all, Jesus didn't claim to be God. He claimed to be God's Messiah. And that's obviously the point of the Gospel of John in verse 31 in the same chapter, just three verses later, that you would believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. That's why these things were written. Why is John pulling punches here? I mean, it's the end of the book. Let it out, man. If, if you really are writing this book to convince us that Jesus is God, that's your opportunity to say it. And he, and he, and he doesn't. He shies away from it because that's not his point. And we're reading that into it if we think that's the point of the Gospel of John to prove that Jesus is God. Well, let's move on to Colossians 2.9. What do you think about that one? In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus. This text, Colossians 2.9, has been translated many different ways. And it has a very unique phrasing that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament with a unique word, theotetas, uh, which means um, what consists of being divine. But I want to draw attention to the way that Paul's using this phrase in conjunction with pleroma. Uh, he's, he's actually used this term, pleroma, quite a few times here in his letters, specifically to the Ephesians. And one place, when he talks about the pleroma of God, he talks about uh, in 319, let's start there, I guess, uh, what it says is, Uh, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you, the Ephesian believers or the church, may be filled with all the fullness, all the pleroma of God. And back up to Ephesians 1.22, it says, and he, God, put all things under his, Jesus's feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness, the pleroma of him, God, who fills all in all. In the body of Christ, Christ's body, this fullness of God is said to dwell. Now, in Colossians 2.9, the entire fullness of God, the fullness of what God is, it says dwells bodily in Christ. You know, I think that this is not referring to some incarnation that um, other theologians have propounded for centuries. Uh, I think that this has been misinterpreted. It's been based on a presupposition that Jesus uh, must have a God nature dwelling inside of him somewhere in addition to his human nature, the famous hypostatic union. I think rather this is actually talking about Christ's body and the way that God has his fullness dwelling within the church, that the church has become the temple of God and that God's spirit and his presence dwell within his people. I think this is a very intricate verse. Yeah, and we have an interesting parallel as well in Ephesians 3 in the prayer there where it says in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ, this is what Paul is praying for, for the Ephesians, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, you Ephesians, you Christians, may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so obviously Christ was filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul prays for us to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now look, is it possible for all the fullness of God to be in a Christian. 
I think a lot of people would say, oh, no, that's impossible because we wouldn't be able to handle it. This is what Paul is praying for. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we need to sort of redefine what we think the fullness of God means to what the Apostle Paul is saying here, rather than have it run away as this huge category that is impossible unless you are yourself fully divine, like uh, a lot of people say about Jesus in light of Colossians 2.9 here. One final point to make on that regard is verse 10 following verse 9 in Colossians 2 is that it says that you have been filled by him who is the head. So you've been filled by Christ with what? With all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God that dwells in Christ bodily, it says that you've been filled with that. If verse 9 means that there's an incarnation of God in some sort of human vessel, then what does that mean for the believers who've been filled with that fullness of God uh, by Christ? Does that mean that he is that we now have like a dual nature of God in us too? No, of course not. I just think that this verse has been misinterpreted by and large based on a presupposition of a theological premise that has long been unchallenged in the church. All right, on to the next part. Peter is clear as well, writing in 2 Peter 1.1 about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's very likely that Paul speaks of Jesus as God in Romans 9.5. Well, it's most likely that in 1 John 5.20, John states that Jesus Christ is the true God. That's why Jesus could say that the Father was in him and he in the Father, John 14. That's why Paul identifies the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8. That's why Paul could pray to the Father and Son together in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, saying, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And he uses a singular verb in the Greek for the Father and Jesus. And why else would Paul include Jesus in a prayer to the Father, let alone pray to the Father and Son using a singular verb in the Greek, unless they're one? 2 Thessalonians 2 Paul puts Jesus first, uses the singular verb again, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. That's why prayer is offered directly to the Son in the New Testament. Stephen praised him in Acts 7, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We're taught to pray, Maranatha, which in Aramaic means our Lord come. And John calls out to him in Revelation 22, even so come, Lord Jesus. Jesus even told us to ask him for anything, and he'd do it in John 14. Brown starts out this next chunk here by mentioning 2 Peter 1.1, and this is where there's a translation issue, and some translations are going to say, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and other translations are going to say, of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, where there are two. And we've already discussed this at some length. It's the, it's, it's the episode where we talked about the Granville Sharp Rule, and Titus 2.13, the previous episode. So we're not going to address this here, but I, I do want to mention that these three texts that he brings up and really shoots out rapid fire, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Romans 9.5, 1 John 5.20, they've got problems. They've got big problems. The first one is a translation issue. The second one is likewise a translation issue. And then the third one is just an interpretation issue. And, and you can easily take them in different ways. And it's not at all clear that the Trinitarian reading is preferred here. For example, Romans 9, 5, it says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In the English Standard Version, 
But in the Catholic version, the NAB, it says theirs is the patriarchs and from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, period. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. Amen. So there are two different translations, two different translation options here. And it just it just depends on what translation you read. I mean, there could be a period there or there could be not be a period there. There were no periods in the originals. Now, having said that, it is ironic that although there are almost no periods in the originals, there are sometimes some little bits of punctuation that we see in the manuscripts. One of the things that's really interesting about the one of the manuscripts, Codex Vaticanus, is that there is a, a dot right after Sarka in the manuscript. It's between Sarka and Oon, and it's a dot that's sort of like higher up, like the top of a colon is where the dot is. And that could indicate that the, the scribe saw this as a separation between what had come before and what would come afterwards. So, I mean, it, it is true that obviously the originals did not have punctuation in them, but some of these, some of these copies do have little bits of punctuation throughout. And additionally, Codex Alexandrinus has a very clear separation. It has a dot right in the middle of the last letter Sarka there, the word for flesh, and then it has some extra space, and then it has the O for the, the one who is overall, Oon, Epi, Ponton, Theos. This is clearly separated off in the manuscript. So obviously this doesn't prove anything either. It just means that the scribes saw this, the fourth century scribe or the fifth century scribe saw these two as separate clauses, not to be just run all together. Because in the ancient Greek manuscripts, they don't usually have spaces between words or even after sentences, just here and there a little bit. So uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and put some pictures in the show notes for this episode so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, what I'm going to go ahead and say is that Romans 9.5 is talking about Christ, and then it ends that thought, and then it talks about how God, because of Christ, God who is overall be blessed forever. Amen. It's a doxology. On a positive note, I will say that these two places here in Romans 9.5 and 1 John 5.20, Brown at least honestly admits that he sees that they could likely be referring to Paul speaking of Jesus as God. I think this might be the only time in the entire opening statement where he actually admits the contingency of this possibility. Yeah, well, he barely admits it. What he says is, it's very likely that Paul speaks of Jesus as God. And then it's most likely that 1 John 5.20, John states that Jesus Christ is the true God. I strongly disagree with that. I mean, 1 John 5.20, here it is. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. It's all a question of how you punctuate the sentence and what you think the he is referring to there. Now, here's the crazy thing. In the translation that I just read to you, they translated the word utos as he. But a more literal translation would go something like this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given to us an understanding in order that we may know the true one and we are in the true one in his son, Jesus Christ. This one is the true God and eternal life. So when he says this one, 
And then once again, it goes back to this alithinos, this word that means the true or the true one. This is referring back to God. He is the true God, or this one is the true God and eternal life. This is what Jesus came to give us an understanding of. Jesus came to give us an understanding of him who is true. This is the true God and eternal life. The fact that we are also in his son, Jesus Christ, doesn't change the fact that the best matching previous antecedent is the one that also says who is true. Furthermore, we know that the Gospel of John and 1 John are written by the same person, and we have a very strong controlling text in John 17, 3, where it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here we have another statement echoing that in 1 John 5.20. This is the true God and eternal life. There's no way in the world we're going we're gonna to see the author switch from the Father to now the Son, and then in his book with little children keep yourselves from idols when he just created an idol. This is a text where only if you presuppose the deity of Christ are you going to see it there. I think the linguistic context, Sean, really lends itself to the understanding that you just expounded upon. And I think that it also, for someone to look at this and say that Jesus is being called the true God, it really has to come from a, a presupposition already. Uh, because I think that the letter here of John has established that the true one is the one that we've come to know. And we are in the true one by being in his son. And so I think you really have to violate the linguistic context here in order to try to make the hutas refer back to Jesus Christ as the one who's being called the true God. Indeed. Let's move on to this next one, Jerry. This is something that you've been chomping at the bit to tackle. And it came up in the debate in the cross-examination, but it's where Brown says in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, and Second Thessalonians 2, 16 to 17, that there are two who are referred to, that God and Jesus, and they're referred to using a singular verb. And as a result of that, they must be the same. So this is something that he brought up to Tuggy, and Tuggy read the scripture out, and he's like, I, I just don't see it here. And I think there was a lot of confusion where we weren't really sure what the verse was, and Brown didn't obviously have it in front of him, so he, he wasn't... He wasn't sure where it was, and Tuggy had his Bible out, but he couldn't find what Brown wanted him to see. So settle this for us, Jerry. What What is the case here, and is there anything to it? Well, Brown's argument that because in places like 1 Thessalonians 3.11, where it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and the uh, in the Greek text, um, there's a singular verb that is used with a dual subject. And this also occurs in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16, 17 as well, uh, where it's uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, uh, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts, the comfort your hearts, the parakaleo there is in a singular form. Both of these, though, are in the optative mood here and, and are in the third person singular form and having a dual subject. And Brown seems to think that that's, Uh, really strong evidence that Jesus and God are one in the essence of their being. The problem with Brown's argument is that it's actually very common for a compound subject in Greek to carry a singular verb. This is not a phenomenon, and there's definitely 
you have to be reading in theological implications here that you already hold in order to see this. And plenty of scholars like Daniel Wallace in his uh, Greek text, Beyond the Basics, and Kostenberger in his text, Intermediate Greek Syntax, they admit openly that in Thessalonians here that uh, the compound subject and the singular verb is not an unusual occurrence. However, for Paul to use the optative mood here with Jesus Christ and God, that these are the only two places outside of one other occurrence, which I believe occurs in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 50, where it says, uh, flesh and blood is not able to inherit uh, the kingdom. And the Greek word there, uh, not able, dunamai, is, is in the Um, singular third person, uh, where flesh and blood being a compound subject, uh, flesh and blood are not equivalent to each other. They're not one in essence or anything like that. But it's very often for a compound subject to carry a singular verb. So that that's like not a some sort of an obscurity here, as though it's peculiar and that Paul is making some theological claim about Jesus being God. Furthermore, there are other occurrences where the optative mood in the third person singular has a compound subject. Peter does this twice, once in 1 Peter 1-2 and in 2 Peter 1-2, where it's grace and peace be multiplied. Be multiplied is a third person singular optative mood verb with grace and peace as a compound subject. And also this happens in Jude 1-2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied unto you. And one other place where Paul has a compound subject with a singular verb is in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Spirit, soul, and body here, the compound subject, are, are all governed by the singular verb teritheē, which is an optative third-person singular. I mean, this is not something unusual that Paul does, but Brown seems to make a really big deal out of it. So the idea that a compound subject with a singular verb in Paul's language in 1 Thessalonians 3.11 or 2 Thessalonians 2.16 and 17, that that must be making some sort of ontological claim about who Jesus and God are as being of one being, that has to come from a presupposed theological position already. It's not something inherent in the text. Absolutely. Thank you for the, doing the hard work to untangle that very unusual argument for the deity of Christ. Just rounding this out then, Brown also makes a point that prayer is offered directly to the Son in the New Testament. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Of course, he's having a vision where he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, so that might not really qualify as prayer if you're looking at the person. Uh, And then he says, Maranatha, which means Lord, come. And John calls out to him in prayer and revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus, and on the, on the basis of that, I guess he's, he's making the point that because Jesus can receive prayer, Jesus is in touch with the church, Jesus has an active heavenly ministry, that in some sense that makes him God? I, I'm not really sure. There, there's really no case that Brown lays out here. He just baldly asserts that these prayers are somehow significant to his case. But, th- but there's no scripture that says that. I mean, you look at all these different points that Brown's making. He's using the Bible in support of a theory that he brings to the text. He's not bringing that theory to us, building it for us out of the text. No, he, he's bringing it in from a foreign place, from uh, an amalgamation of just bad Greek philosophy and ancient creedal formulas, and then trying to find a way for the Bible to support that. And as a result of that, he's bending these scriptures all out of shape in order to support 
his theory. And look, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Jesus can't be prayed to or that only God can be prayed to. If God wants to give Jesus this role within the church, then that's God's business. And he's allowed to exalt people and agents to different roles. Let's take a listen to the next part. That's why in Revelation 22, we read that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem and his servants will worship him. Not them, but him. God and the Lamb. One divine being and one throne. That's why in Revelation 22, we read that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem and his servants will worship him. Not them, but him. God and the Lamb. One divine being and in the end, one throne, not two. They will see his face not their faces, and his name, not their names, will be on their foreheads. This argument here from Revelation 22, that the book of Revelation has somehow identified God and the Lamb as a singular hymn. Come, it's really hard for me to, to see how that is even a possibility, considering the fact that the word hymn means a singular individual. It would be them if it was God and the Lamb. And this is something else that we see throughout the book of Revelation, by the way. That there is, even in Jesus' exalted status, a clear delineation between God and Jesus. In fact, you see it throughout the book. You see it early on in chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus repeatedly refers to God as my God over and over and over. And even here, this is a Unitarian text, chapter 22, verse 3. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Look, God and the Lamb. That's not a Trinitarian way of referring to Jesus. This should say something like, God, both Father and Son. But that's not what it says. It says God, that's one individual, and and the Lamb, indicating that this Lamb is not God. I don't think his point is at all true that him refers to both together. I think him just refers to God. And it refers to seeing God's face and God's name being in their foreheads and that God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. I think that's the easiest, simplest reading and that the way Brown is reading this is extremely strained because he's got his theory in view and so he wants to read it in light of that. Yeah, if you look back at the end of uh, chapter 21, it says uh, in verse 22, I did not see a sanctuary in it. Uh, referring to the New Jerusalem, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. So the Almighty is the Lord God, not the Lamb. The Lamb is distinct from the Lord God Almighty. And because God's glory, it says later on in verse 23, will illuminate, and its lamp is the Lamb. God's glory will illuminate it, but the lamp is the Lamb. Two distinct individuals are being mentioned here. Yeah. Let's move on to the next point. To review... There's no question whatever that the Son is eternal, preexistent, and fully divine, the one through whom all things were created, and the one who is worthy to receive praise, honor, and glory, and to whom prayer can be directed. That's why he's called God in a number of texts, and that's why we worship him as God, one with his Father. And that's why when Jesus returns to the earth and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, as promised in Acts 1.11, Zechariah tells us that it will be Yahweh's feet that touch down, Zechariah 14. And that's why we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A glorified man has no place between the Father and the Spirit. 
So here, here Brown is summarizing and reviewing what he believes he's proved. We don't need to rehash all this because we've already shown what we believe the Scripture is clearly saying in these texts. As far as this text in Zechariah 14, 3-4, how Yahweh's feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives, there are two ways to understand that. One is to understand it that God himself is going to touch down and that this is just literally referring to a theophany, and that this happens at the same time that Jesus comes back or at a later time after Jesus comes back. The second is to see Jesus as the eschatological agent through whom God returns. And so, for example, Brown pointed out Acts 111, in the same manner that you saw him leave, he will return to the Mount of Olives, that when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives and the prophecy of Zechariah is fulfilled, it's actually God fulfilling it through his son, Jesus Christ, in whom he dwells fully. And, and then Brown just throws in Matthew 28, 19, that we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't see an argument there. I'm fine with that. It means what it says. And then he says, a glorified man has no place between the Father and the Spirit. It seems like Brown here is assuming that the Son is a competitor to God over and over again. That is the straw man that he's setting up over against his own view that the Son just is the Father, or that the Son just is God in the same way that the Father is God, either one of those. We don't see the Son as a competitor. We see the Son as the one the Father has exalted, the one the Father has glorified, the one that the Father has worked through to achieve salvation and redemption. So it is fitting for the Son to be listed between the Father and the Spirit. Why? Because the Son is the one that the Father worked through in the Spirit. And so nothing could be more appropriate than putting the Son between the Father and His Spirit. And it's to the Spirit that we will now turn our attention, because even though the debate question was, is the Father alone true God, Brown slips in a little bit on the Spirit here at the end. So let's, let's listen to what he has to say. In fact, as we look at the scriptural evidence, we see that lying to the Spirit is lying to God, Acts 5, that the Spirit can be grieved, Isaiah 63, Ephesians 4, that the Spirit teaches, guides, speaks, intercedes, appoints leaders, and bears witness, many scriptures for all of that, that the Spirit is manifest through wisdom and knowledge, and that the Spirit is eternal. The Spirit is also God. That's why Paul could speak of the love of the Spirit, and that's why Paul could invoke this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, and note, you have fellowship with a person, not with a thing. That's why Christians concluded that God was triune, one God, made known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. In the New Testament, the Father is primarily known as God, the Son is primarily known as Lord, and the Spirit is given various titles to explain his work and mission, although he's sometimes called Lord too, as in 2 Corinthians 3. That's why Jesus could say things like this in John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And that's why blasphemy against the Spirit, not against an impersonal force, but against God himself, was a damnable sin. You were damned for sinning against a divine someone, not just a powerful something. All right, Jerry, what do you think about this Holy Spirit? I mean, this is a very classic case, the sort of case you would read on a typical Christian apologetics website 
where they cite evidence that the spirit is lied to or grieved or blasphemy against the spirit and so on. How do you understand these kinds of texts about the Holy Spirit? I think one of the problems that a lot of uh, people who hold a Trinitarian theological framework have is that they look at the use of pneuma as a personal entity all the time in all of its occurrences. And I think they fall into then a categorical error here. Uh, yeah, there is plenty of times where the Spirit is, is referring to God. And God is the Spirit. Um, when uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Spirit, it's paralleled with lying to God in Acts chapter 5. There's no question about that. And then there are other places where the idea of God's Spirit is his power at work in the world and in believers. And, and these are places where the Spirit teaches people or guides people or speaks to people, intercedes for people and, and such things and bears witness to God and pours out and his love is poured out through the Spirit uh, to believers, uh, Romans chapter 5. Trying to equate all of those as titles for uh, God as a personal being, I think, is, is to make that categorical error. Right. So you're saying that the Spirit is a way of talking about the Father as opposed to a distinct person from the Father. Yes. Yeah. And then the word, the Greek word pneuma is also used of the way that God's power is at work in the world and in believers as well. So would you say the Spirit is impersonal? There's an aspect to God's Spirit that's impersonal, yes, but God himself is called the Spirit. And pneuma is also used uh, in reference to angels. Angels are, are called a, a spirit. And uh, even Jesus in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is the Lord is the Spirit. So I think that Brown is trying to bulldoze this, this idea of the Spirit and all of its occurrences is referring to God, and therefore God is doing all these things as a personal being. That is not the Father, and that is not the Son, but some other mysterious entity that also is God in his view. The Bible does talk about the Spirit as the power of God, as a force, but it is also personal because it is a way of talking about the Father in action, God's Word, God's wisdom, God's Spirit. I mean, if there was a Trinity, that's that's it right there. Uh, but of course, these are God's attributes and, and ways of moving and getting things done in the world. Just like God's finger, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you in one gospel. And in another, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is a way of talking about God doing something. And then after the ascension, Christ is also present within his followers through the Spirit. So it is personal, but at the same time, it's not God actually present among us because he is still in heaven until we read in the end of the Bible that we will see his face in the last day. Yeah, I think you're right, Sean. Uh, I will say, though, that it's not the fact that God is not with us. Uh, he is imminent. He is, he is nearer to us than our very breath, as the scriptures say. But yeah, God doesn't dwell inside of us in some sort of a, a body sense. Uh, his spirit is what connects us to himself and Christ, his son. So you're saying that the spirit is God's mediated presence, whereas in the end, when it says that we will see his face and he will dwell among us, behold the tabernacle of God is with men, that that would be an immediate presence of God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think we're on the same page with that. What about this whole idea of fellowship with the Spirit? You can't have fellowship with a thing. What about that? Yeah, when Brown brings up this uh, second triad in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, he interprets that phrase to be fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that's the correct interpretation of that phrase there. 
the idea of fellowship of the Holy Spirit, I would rather say that's a genitive of source there, that the fellowship that is brought about by the Spirit. You know, when Paul talks about in Corinthians that we all have drank from the one Spirit, we're united together because of the Spirit. We are united in the body of Christ by the one Spirit. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 is all about. There is one Spirit and one body among all of God's people. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, it says in verse 1, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any compassion and mercy. That, that phrase, uh, fellowship of the Spirit, kononia pneumatas, uh, that genitive there, pneumatas, it could be the participation or fellowship in the Spirit, or it could be the fellowship that is brought about by the Spirit. And so uh, for Brown to just suggest that it's fellowship with the Spirit, and that means that the Spirit has to be a person, that interpretive move, I think, is completely theologically motivated. One other example that we can talk about here is in 2 Corinthians 8, 4. There's another great occurrence here. It says, in, starting there in verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Literally, it's the fellowship of the ministry of the saints. Kononian tes diakonias. And this is a place where it's not, the believers aren't fellowshipping with the ministry. They're participating in the service in right, the ministry. Right. Fellowship is used in a lot of different ways. But Brown has this narrow view on it. And I just don't, I just don't think he has any good evidence for it. We remain unconvinced on that point. Another point he brought up was in John 15, 26. It says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, that Jesus said things like this because Jesus was, what, uh, hinting at the personality of the Holy Spirit, something like that. But I think it's very important to keep in mind that when we are talking about the Last Supper discourse, John 14 to 16 in particular, that at the end of the whole thing, Jesus says in 1625, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So Jesus says that he's speaking to him in figures of speech. What figure of speech is, is it? It's the figure of speech called personification. He's talking about the Spirit as if it is a separate person, as if it is a distinct person from himself and from God as well. But yet, what does he say here? What is the interpretation of the figure? He says, I will plainly tell you about the Father. He's talking about how God is going to be at work and how he, he himself is going to be at work in his disciples' lives. Yes, he is coming back. We all believe that. But he also is coming back sooner via the Spirit to be a helper, an advocate, and so on. And it's interesting, this word paraclete, not to go too deep here, but the word paraclete, which is translated helper or comforter or advocate, depending on what translation you're reading, shows up only in the Last Supper discourse, John 14 to 16, as well as one other time in the whole Bible, 1 John chapter 2, where it clearly and unambiguously refers to Christ in his heavenly ministry. So this is cherry-picking text. It's not being true to the overall context of John 15, 26, I don't think that's a good practice for building a doctrine. 
Yeah, and actually in John 15, 26 here, this is the only place that an argument could possibly be made in the discourse of John 14 and 15 for a masculine pronoun being used with the, used with the spirit. Because every other time with parakletos and uh, tapanuma, tes uh, aletheos, the spirit of truth and the paraclete or the comforter, the pronouns uh, match uh, either neuter or masculine based upon their antecedent. But here in John 15, 26, we have ekenos here, uh, that is masculine following the uh, spirit of truth, tapanuma teis aletheos, which if you look at it though, it's juxtaposed with the end of a dependent clause. And a very good argument is made by some scholars that it just reaches back to parakletos, which is a masculine noun at the beginning of the verse. So th there's this is really shaky ground to try to make a big argument out of it. Yeah, and if you are interested in the Holy Spirit and the translation in particular of the word spirit and parakletos and the context of the Last Supper, please check out my articles on this. I've written extensively on the grammar and the translation of this whole subject of pneumatology on restitutio.org. Just look under articles. I've got two full-length articles on that subject where I analyze it. It's, it's a fascinating subject. Take a look at that if you're interested in it. I did want to touch on the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit charge that Brown brings up here. He says, that's why blasphemy against the Spirit is not against an impersonal force, but against God himself was a damnable sin. I totally agree. I totally agree. And look, if you don't presuppose the Trinity when you come to Matthew 12, verse 31, you're not going to have a problem at all. I mean, the context is very clear. Jesus is casting out demons. People are saying he's doing it by the prince of demons, by Beelzebul. His antagonists are claiming that God, who's at work in Christ doing these miraculous deeds, is actually a demon. They're accusing the work of God as being the work of demons. And so Jesus says, verse 31, this is Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy, the slander against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Hello! But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Look, if you read the, the Trinity into this, I don't, I don't see how <laughs> there's co-equality here. In this text, you can, you can curse, you can blaspheme the Son of Man, but you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make any sense if they're supposed to be co-equal in rank and dignity and status. But yet, what if the Spirit here is simply a way of talking about God the Father himself? Then what we have is a clear subordinationist text where you want to slander the Son of Man, go ahead. But if you slander God, if you slander the one that the Son of Man is serving, then you're going to have a real problem. And that's what they were doing, is they were slandering God because the Son of Man did not have power in himself to cast out these demons. It was God at work within Christ, as it says very clearly in Acts 10.38, where Peter says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It's God in Christ reconciling the world to himself casting out the demons and doing the works. As Jesus himself repeatedly said, when he said, it's not my own initiative, these are not my works, but it is God who is at work within me. So that's what's going on here with the blasphemy of the Spirit. It's actually a text that, that works against the doctrines of the Trinity. All right, here's Brown's next statement. And it's only when we understand God's triunity that we can understand how people saw God in the Old Testament, yet the Bible says no one's ever seen God. The Father remains hidden. It is the Son who makes him known. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, 
You've seen the Father. And that's where he could say, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You cannot say that God created the world through a glorified man, or that a glorified man, Hebrews 1, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. That's why Jacob in Genesis 48 described God as the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all harm. Yes, Jacob equated the one true God with the angel who redeemed him. This was his way of describing the preexistent son who appeared sometimes in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Jacob encountered him too. And just as Paul prayed to Jesus and the Father is one, using a singular verb, so also here Jacob appeals to God and his redeeming angel, one being in the singular as well. So this is one of the points that Brown brought up repeatedly in the debate that people in the Old Testament saw God, and yet in the New Testament it says that no one could see God. Therefore, the God that they saw was Christ as an angel. I mean, this is really one of the most convoluted arguments for the deity of Christ I've ever encountered. Uh, And it's not distinctive to Brown. I've heard others make this point as well. It's kind of ironic because, you know, Hebrews 1 makes a point that Jesus is above the angels, and then it seems like Brown, the way he's interpreting Genesis, is bringing Jesus back down to the level of an angel, saying that Jesus appeared as an angel. But if Jesus is God, then of course you can't see God unless he's not really God. So I'm not really even sure what the argument is here. Yeah, this was actually an argument that I I was surprised Brown tried to make because in the text of Genesis 48 here in in verses 15 and 16, uh, the God uh, that is being spoken about and then the angel in verse 16 are set in opposition to each other, not in conjunction. They're not courting. It's not the God and the angel. It's the God before whom my fathers Abraham, Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel. It's in opposition. The angel who has redeemed me. That is the God that's being referred to here from all evil. Bless the boys. It's not that God is being described as an angel, but it's suggesting that there's an angelic presence that is sent by and representing God to protect him. Uh, The NET text note uh, offers a really great explanation here that says that the author so closely associates the two, the angel and God, that they become virtually indistinguishable. In this culture, messengers typically carried the authority of the one who sent them and could even be addressed as such. That's an obvious example of agency there. And furthermore, it says, perhaps Jacob thought that the divine blessing would be mediated through this angelic messenger. And so having uh, God and the angel, having those terms in apposition, it's completely natural that the verb would then be in the singular. So Brown's point that the singular refers to like compound subject here is completely erroneous. On the one hand, he says, Jesus preexisted as an angel. Okay, that's weird, but whatever. And then... He says, well, Jesus is God. And then he says, no one can see God, but they saw Jesus. And I'm not sure how this all adds up. You know, it doesn't seem like he's establishing a logical connection here. It just seems very confused. But uh, we're we're just about out of time, so we're going to have to rush a little bit through the rest of this here and uh, just finish this out. As a Jewish follower of Jesus, there's always been pressure on me to deny what Scripture plainly teaches, namely that Jesus, the Son, is eternal deity, and that God's unity is complex. 
But because the word is so clear on this, I could not and would not yield to this pressure. And by the way, there's far more evidence I could bring from the Old Testament to support this. Time doesn't permit. So I, I urge each of you to fall down at the feet of the glorious Son and worship him as God. This will please the Father who sent his Son to be the Savior of the world and who continues to work among us by his Spirit. And after Paul laid out God's extraordinary plan to save both Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11, he wrote these incredible words from the Old Testament as well. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to, whom, uh, to him that might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let's stop trying to put the infinite and eternal God into the tiny box of our limited minds as if we ourselves could figure out or define him or reduce him to a mathematical formula. And let's instead worship our triune God with reverence and awe. That is humility, and that is wisdom. Thank you. I just had a couple of very quick points. I mean, obviously, he's just landing the plane here and finishing up. One is that he reiterates his point that Jesus, the Son, is eternal deity. And he, he believes that he's established over and over again, but yet I'm still waiting. Where's the verse, honestly? You know, we, we've seen a couple of attempts, but where's the verse that says that Jesus is eternal? We have clear texts. I mean, who in the world, in the Christian world, would deny that Jesus is begotten? And yet to be begotten is to have a beginning. To be a son is to have a father. Look, if, if you have two people who are related and are the same age, they're biologically related and they're the same age. What are they? Those are brothers. Those are sisters. They're not father and son. If you, you know, just by definition, the father has to cause the son to come into existence for the son to be a son. Otherwise, they're brothers. So, you know, what, what, is, it, what is it with all this e eternality? And it, I find this, this point in particularly interesting because Brown, just yesterday, from the time of this recording, came on the air and did an entire show called The Eternal Deity of the Son. And for 48 minutes, all he did was repeat all the arguments from his opening statement. He just took his time and spoke them a little slower. And so I, I'm still holding out. I'm, I'm waiting to hear him interact with the explanations that we've put out here. And, you know, hey, if he's too busy, if he's not interested, if this isn't an important enough subject for him, then, then I guess that's just too bad. But for you, dear listener, please, if, if you believe in the eternal, the whole theory of the eternal son, and you have your own Trinity box that you're putting everything into, explain how this makes sense, please. Because I haven't seen a single verse that Brown has used that used the phrase eternal son, God the son, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential, three persons, one essence. I mean, none of this language I don't see the word Trinity. I don't see the word triunity. I don't see the word triple or triplet. I don't see the word trias in Greek in the New Testament. The idea, ladies and gentlemen, is just not there. The assumption is Jewish monotheism based on the 39 books of the Old Testament that had come out already before the New Testament was written and that Jesus was steeped in. And that's why they themselves bring the presupposition of Unitarianism or the presupposition of strict monotheism to the New Testament. 
I just can't justify bringing in this Trinity philosophical mindset. And the second point I wanted to make, Jerry, is that he ends it by saying, we can't put the infinite eternal God into the tiny box of our limited minds. Then he says, let's worship our triune God with reverence and awe. So in one breath, he's doing both. He's saying that we can't put God into a box, and then he and, and then he constructs a box called the Trinity and puts God into it. Look, I'm not the one that's trying to put God into anything. I'm just trying to read the scriptures and agree with what they're saying. And I don't find the Trinity in the scriptures. I don't find Jesus being called God all over the place, like the Father's called God. Look, 1,300 times for the Father. And what do we have, twice for the Son? The belly is called God at least that many times. Satan is called God at least once. Jesus himself, John 10, 34, a text we didn't really get to spend enough time with in this explanation. Jerry mentioned it. Clearly, Jesus is aware of and talks about this secondary meaning of the word God as those who receive the word of God. So I'm sorry, I, I remain unconvinced. I appreciate that Brown articulated his, his point of view, but I did not find it at all convincing to give up the clear monotheism, the Shema of the Jewish people, and the clear affirmations we see of that in the New Testament and 1 Timothy 2.5, that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, Ephesians 4.6, that there's one God and Father. I mean, you just don't see Trinitarian formulae in the Scripture. And so I'm going to go ahead and say that that box, that 4th century Greek philosophers infiltrated into the church, that formula, or those formulae, they're, they're no good. And I, I'm, I don't think I should have to believe in them because I want to just affirm what Scripture teaches. In response to Michael Brown's final final statement, I would say he is actually the one that is trying to turn the God into some sort of mathematical formula that ends up becoming an absurdity when you try to think about it and conceptualize it, which he has not even actually really done a very good job of delineating how he even understands it. I mean, the conundrums that are posed by the philosophical vagaries of his ideas on, on how the Son can be eternal and be equal with the Father, but yet... He doesn't even distinguish the two. He like he equates them and almost collapses them one on top of each other. I really I don't understand his theology, and I don't agree with it. He is far from the biblical testimony. I think in Peter's sermon uh, in the temple there at the temple gate, beautiful in Acts chapter three, when he's talking uh, about Jesus the one that God appointed as the Messiah. He quotes Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him in everything he will say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Well, we're trying to listen to the words of that prophet. We're trying to listen to the words of the Messiah. And he is saying that he is revealing to us the almighty God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the one who planned from eternity to have a family for himself of which Christ has become the firstborn among, among the dead and is leading us into a resurrected life that will ultimately be with him and the father in the kingdom in the new Jerusalem where there will be no night, where there'll be no sorrow and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Those are the words that we are listening to. 
That's the testimony of scripture, not some invented, convoluted idea of philosophy that there's these three individuals meshed into one, and somehow the scriptures reveal this in some enigmatic way that we have to somehow discover it centuries later by people who are trying to put together Greek thought with Jewish roots. This now concludes our series on refuting Michael Brown's case for the Trinity. If you would like to add your voice to this episode and leave a comment on restitutio.org, that would be great. Love to read what you have to say. I'd love to hear what your take is on any of these verses, whether you're on Tuggy's side or Brown's side, either way. And I wanted to just take a moment here to speak directly to Dr. Brown. First of all, I want to say that I respect you as a fellow believer and a passionately committed follower of Yeshua HaMashiach. And I've got good news for you, Dr. Brown. As it turns out, you don't have to reject your heritage in order to believe in Jesus. In fact, there are quite a number of Messianic Jews, both here in the United States, as well as in Israel, who accept Jesus as Messiah, along with the authority of Scripture, but don't buy into the later pagan creeds. I can see that you wear the Trinity language awkwardly. Whenever you speak of it, it comes out in a strained way as if evangelicalism has a gun to your head. I ask you, I, no, I challenge you to join us. Forget Catholic tradition. Forget Orthodox tradition. Forget Protestant tradition. Cling to Scripture. Don't read the later theories into it. Don't treat it like a lawyer cobbling together a case. Just read it for what it really is. It clearly teaches over and over, tens of thousands of times, that Yahweh is God. He, the singular personal pronoun, He is God alone. And that He has an only begotten, not eternal, but begotten Son, who is Messiah and Lord. Join us, won't you? And if you won't join us, please show us where we're wrong, because we really want to know. We are true Bereans here at Restitutio. We believe that we can be mistaken and that we should hold all ideas up to Scripture to see if it's really true. Also, I want to encourage everyone to check out the show notes for this episode where I put links to my articles on translating the Holy Spirit. We didn't really have time to get into too much depth here, as well as links to the original debate and post-debate follow-up interviews with both sides. Uh, Also, we've got some feedback from our last episode. Sean writes, great rebuttal. This is for refuting Michael Brown's opening statement, part three. Great rebuttal. I don't think I could think of a single thing to add to your explanations. All I see over and over is that BUs are open and honest about legitimate understandings, even if they disagree, while Trinitarians rake over the coals anyone who disagrees with traditional interpretations. I'm a number four interpreter for Hebrews 1.10, and I really think, after looking it over more and more with the total context of Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, it's being completely cherry-picked by Trinitarians. They don't seem to understand the entire point of the first two chapters and the arguments the writer is making. They're too busy in the thick of the trees rather than seeing the entire forest. Well, uh, thanks for writing in, Sean. I couldn't agree more with your assessment of a methodological issue here with the Trinitarian case for the deity of Christ. Um, They're not really engaging in Scripture. They're using Scripture. They're pulling statements out here and there. And, you know, I use this example from time to time, but I can prove that Peter was in the Garden of Eden. 
What? Well, we know that the serpent was in the Garden of Eden, right? And in Revelation 12, 9, it says that the serpent is Satan. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Ergo, Peter, I'm going to start a new church, new doctrine, a new denomination. Peter was in the Garden of Eden, and he's the one that tempted Adam. And that Adam was really Jesus, because Jesus is called Adam in the New Testament, right? I mean, you can see how immediately ridiculous we can get if we just cherry-pick verses here and verses there and link them all together as if the Bible contains a list of mathematical formulas. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. You have to read any literature within context. So thanks for pointing that out, Sean. And just before closing out here, I wanted to read out an email I received from Nick. He writes, just wanted to thank you for your recent work on systematically rebutting Dr. Brown's opening statement in his debate with Tuggy. Uh, then he goes on, he says, I was excited for Dale's debate with Dr. Brown as a way to help bring me back into the theological discourse and aid me to work out the issues on both sides of the debate in my mind. I found myself siding with Dale more and more as the debate went on. Afterward, I decided to check out your rebuttals analysis of Brown's statement and essentially binge listen to three episodes you have out so far in incredibly short timing. I ate them up. It brought clarity to the situation for me unlike I've had in quite a while and helped me realize the errors of my recent theological leanings. He had been leaning towards the Trinity. Those must have taken a long time to prepare and record, and I know a lot of work went into them. Just wanted to thank you for being willing to do that. It's really helped me to think logically about many issues I just hadn't for a while. I would consider myself back to the BU side, and this time I know my position will be more thought out and reasoned. I'm not planning to change again anytime soon. Unlike last time, though, I'm taking it slow and thinking through everything logically. I know it took Dale 10 years to work through all of this, and I've only been aware of the BUs for two years. So I'm taking my time and really looking into all the facets of the conversation, and that won't be a bad thing for me at all. Well, so thanks so much for writing in, Nick. Of course, I remember you from when we met at the Theological Conference a couple of years ago, and I'm at once saddened to hear that you return to Trinitarianism, but I'm delighted to see that you, after engaging with the, the content of Trinitarianism and the content of Scripture, you have come to see that the one God position is, in fact, the biblical one. So thanks so much for writing in. Hope to see you in the future. And one last thing, just to end this episode, I have been toying with this idea of counting up all the verses that Michael Brown used in his opening statement, because uh, Dr. Tuggy did accuse him of machine gunning, and Dr. Brown very adamantly and repeatedly denied that he did any such thing. So I just want to let you know the stats are in. Drum roll, please. And we have an astounding 60-plus scriptures. Now, these are, of course, not all verses that specifically support the deity of Christ. Many of these are tangential or, or comparative verses. But that's how many texts that Brown brought up in 20 minutes, 60-plus verses. Uh, if you count it from his manuscript, well over 70 or 80 verses. I mean, what is a mach- how fast do you have to pull that trigger in order for it to be a machine gun? Well, let's do the math. Three verses a minute 
That's 20 seconds on average, a maximum of 20 seconds on average until the next verse comes out. I'm sorry, but look, if you drop a verse every 20 seconds for 20 minutes straight and then give somebody, what, 10 minutes to rebut that, there's no way, there's no way in the world he's going to be able to make any kind of dent in that amount of material. So, I mean, what is that? It's a debater's trick, ladies and gentlemen. It's not, you know, it's about winning the debate. It's not about coming to a better understanding about the subject. It's not even about really defending his own position, as we've already stated repeatedly. I mean, it was just a drive-by. So you can deny it if you want to. You maybe want to call it a semi-automatic, but it it sure did seem like a machine gun to me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, Jerry and I both had a lot of fun recording this series, and I hope to have another episode out shortly on the whole principle of agency. So stay tuned for that. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.